Well, good morning, and thanks for joining us again this morning. As George has said, we are continuing to work our way through 2 Samuel, uh, taking uh, some of the main points from that. And uh, our message this morning actually, or our passage, covers three chapters in 2 Samuel, chapters 11, 12, and 13. So we obviously won't have time to read the whole passage or to comment on everything that's in it. So I'll try to explain the main points, but I am relying on you having some familiarity with the incidents being talked about. So let's read some short extracts. First of all, 2 Samuel chapter 11. And we'll read how the chapter begins. 2 Samuel chapter 11, and we'll read the first five verses. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman washing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. And the rest of the chapter tells how David first tried to cover up his immorality, going so far as to have Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, killed and then he took Bathsheba as his wife. Now, the next chapter, chapter 12, uh, we read how uh, the Lord confronted David about his sin. So verse 1 of chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan to David. Then when he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain time, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now, a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are the man. The rest of this chapter then, David admits his sin and repents. Uh, but his repentance did not get rid of the consequences of his sin. And just the very beginning of chapter 13, in the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. Last week, we covered two incidents where David tried to show what we call the love of God, a special word that describes the loyal kindness of God. This morning, we have two sordid incidents where the subject is what some people call 
love, but which is more accurately called lust. And in subsequent chapters about Absalom, there will be two further lengthy stories where their inner motivation is to do what our heart tells us. And that's, uh, some people think that following your heart is living by love. But it's more complicated than that. And so in this middle section of 2 Samuel from chapters 9 to 20, we have three types of love. There's loyal, faithful love, like the way God loves us. This love is thoughtful and involves the mind. It involves a covenant and it remembers and keeps promises faithfully. Our section today talks about physical sexual desire. Now, within the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman, that desire is not sinful. As Hebrews 13 says, the marriage bed is pure. But outside marriage between a man and a woman, if sexual desire is nurtured and indulged, it leads to sins which break all the boundaries of faithful covenants and all God's boundaries and moral laws. And the third uh, section, uh, which we won't be looking at today, the inner emotions which we call the heart. That picture, or that aspect which some people call love, the emotions. Acting from the heart is not sinful in itself. But in chapters 14 to 20, the issue is this. Are our decisions and actions controlled by our emotions? Or do we decide to do what is right, even if that is in conflict with our emotions and what our heart wants us to do? So you can think of these three different forms of love as loving with our mind, with our body, and with our heart. In all three cases, there is first the inner motivation of love, but in each case, that motivation must be bounded and controlled by some form of covenant or by rules which put boundaries around how we should act. If our inner motivation to love leads us to break those rules and to cross the boundaries of the covenant, then that is sin. And each of the three passages show the inevitable and disastrous consequences of love which breaks and goes beyond God's boundaries. So it's important to get love right. Living a life based on love is a very complicated issue, partly because there are these different forms of love, different motivations which we call love, and partly because there is often a real conflict between what we think love is telling us to do and what the boundaries of God's word tells us to do. And this section of 2 Samuel shows that living within the boundaries of God's word is always for our own good and fulfillment. It always fulfills love without the disastrous consequences. And it's especially true for those who are in positions of leadership. So this morning, we have to look at the second form of what some call love, physical sexual desire. The passage describes two sordid incidents which follow a similar pattern and which are interconnected. I have to say, I find uh, the issues in this passage rather distasteful to have to talk about, but it's here in scripture and it's sadly all too relevant 
in our world today. So the two incidents are these. In chapter 11, King David desires another man's wife, Bathsheba, and uses his power as king to get what he wants. Then God rebukes David through the prophet Nathan in chapter 12. And in chapter 13, David's son Amnon desires his stepsister Tamar, the sister of Absalom. He uses his physical strength to overpower her and defile her. It's here we start to see the chain reaction which David's first sin with Bathsheba started. David should have judged Amnon for his sin, but because of his own sin with Bathsheba, David feels he has no moral authority to judge Amnon, and so Amnon is not dealt with. As a result, Absalom, Tamar's sister, takes the law into his own hands and kills Amnon. David then has to deal with Absalom's sin, which eventually leads to Absalom's rebellion against David and to Absalom's death. So you can see that in both these cases, there's the issue of abuse of power, which goes alongside physical desire. The combination of power and influence on the one hand and sexual desire on the other is a potent mixture, as we have sadly seen in our world today. We'll return to that issue later. But for the rest of our time this morning, I'd like to work through the sad story of David's fall into sin with Bathsheba and how God, through Nathan, challenged David's sin and brought him to repentance. It's been a well-trodden passage, and I won't have anything particularly new to say on the story, but the scripture itself is challenging in its own right, and we should allow the scripture to challenge our inner attitudes and thoughts which may creep into our hearts. Now, again, just by way of context, as I may have mentioned before, 2 Samuel is divided into three chunks, and each part corresponds to a different phase in David's life. I could put it like this. The first chunk from chapters 1 to 8, we see David as a young man, uh, as, uh, <clears throat> whereas in the section we're looking at, uh, 9 to 20, we see David as a middle-aged man, And finally, from chapter 21 onwards, uh, later in the year, we'll see David as an old man. So in the first eight chapters, David, as a young man, is a rising star, if you like. In this section, he achieves all his key goals in establishing his kingdom and bringing about a united, stable kingdom. But what do you do when you've achieved your goals in life. Do you retire and enjoy walking the dog? The middle section of 2 Samuel deals with David in middle age. And his task now is to maintain his kingdom. That's not as exciting as winning and uniting a kingdom. And middle age can be difficult to handle. When you're a young adult, What are your key ambitions, your key goals? Perhaps to get a qualification, to get a good job, to get married, to have your own home, and to have a family. All very good ambitions uh, and things that really motivate and inspire you 
when you're young. But what happens by the age of 40 and you have achieved all those ambitions? What do you do for the next 25 years? You see a new generation growing up around you in work. You're no longer the promising young guy or the attractive new girl. You're part of the furniture. And others below you are attracting all the attention. It can be difficult to accept that you're no longer young. Some middle-aged people go into denial about their age and try to keep acting young. If they could only see themselves as others see them. Middle-aged Christians need to stop trying to be young when they need to discover in the Lord a new purpose for their life in middle age. A purpose which, on the one hand, does not try to rival the new younger generation, and on the other hand, is not simply looking forward to retirement. If you've had to wrestle with this issue yourself, or if you've, been, if you've seen your husband or wife wrestling with it, then you may recognize some of the warning signs in the sad story of David and Bathsheba. The very first point that the writer makes on this story in chapter 11 is this. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. It's really pointed. In the early part of David's life, he was loved by his soldiers because he personally led them into battle. He was not an armchair general. He led by example. He led from the front. But in his middle age, he relaxed. He let others lead the army into battle while he rested at home. We read that in the evening, he got out of bed. He must have been in bed early in the evening, and then he went on to the roof. The writer is sending a very obvious warning of danger ahead. If David is going to lead others to, do, uh, to let others do what he did when he was a young man, if he didn't now have the challenges that he had as a young man, he needed to have new challenges, which he hadn't done before. He could have focused on the economy, he could have focused on the plight of the poor in his kingdom. He could have developed a mission and a project for the Levites to teach everybody in the country the scriptures, as one of his descendants did. But it seems that David was content not to have any new goals in life, no new challenges which would keep him working hard and even which would keep him awake at night. That's a very dangerous condition to be in, not having any goals in life. And that was David's first failure. It can be a problem with middle age and retirement. For some parents, their goals are all bound up with their job and with their family. But what happens when your family all go off to university and live their own lives? It can leave a mother in particular wondering what use she is now. Or for a father, what do you do when you retire and no one needs you anymore? You need to retire to something, not from something. 
Middle-aged Christians need to work personally with the Lord to find new challenges, new ways of doing good, new ways of serving the Lord, new roles in life. Otherwise, as the English saying goes, the devil finds work for idle hands. The writer in this passage documents the second stage of David's fall into sin, when from his palace rooftop veranda, he looks down on the city of Jerusalem and observes Bathsheba as she was bathing on her rooftop as part of her purification, Scripture says. One point I feel maybe worth making it here is that there is no hint in Scripture that Bathsheba was trying to catch David's attention or that she shared any blame for what happened. Verse 4 does say that she was concerned about being pure. And when Nathan the prophet was later describing to David what happened in the form of a, a little story, he pictures Bathsheba as a little female lamb, like an innocent little lamb who was her husband's pride and joy. Now, I don't know how far away from the king's palace she lived, but David must have had phenomenal eyesight to see that she was beautiful from a distance of perhaps a few hundred meters. I suspect his eyesight was enhanced by his imagination. And when a man has wrong desires, his imagination can start to play a very dangerous role. He can imagine that a woman is more interested in him than the facts warrant. David needed a reality check. Why on earth would a much younger woman with a loving young husband be interested in a middle-aged man who was past his peak? David should have asked that. Any decent man seeing what David saw would have immediately come inside a bit embarrassed and would have found some work to do. But David didn't. He allowed his mind to dwell on what he saw. Martin Luther once said, you can't keep birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. I won't go into details on this, but it obviously applies today to the whole subject of watching pornography. This was David's second failure. It was his second opportunity to escape <clears throat> from the slippery slope he was on, but he refused to take the way of escape. And from this point on, David's sin becomes more willful and intentional. He sends someone to find out who she is. Then he uses his power and authority as king to send his officials to her, to bring her and to sleep with her. So David had several opportunities to avoid his slide into sin, but he refused at each stage. His sin was no one moment of madness. It was a long series of small but important decisions where each step involved indulging himself a little bit more than before. The rest of the chapter describes various attempts of David to cover up his sin once he heard that Bathsheba was pregnant. His plan was to recall her husband Uriah so that people would think that the baby was Uriah's. <clears throat> but Uriah was a most noble character. He refused to take <clears throat> advantage of his recall from war to go home to his wife. And he did that out of solidarity with his fellow soldiers who were still fighting. Uriah was the epitome 
of a loyal soldier of David. He was selfless and he showed loyalty, the loyalty which is characteristic of the love of God. There's a tragic irony in this part of the story. David was a leader who inspired loyalty in his followers, and yet his sin led him to be so disloyal that he killed one of his most loyal followers. David's sin destroyed in David his most valuable and admired quality, his loyalty to others. It destroyed who David was. That's why sin, particularly sexual sin and its consequences, is so serious and is so warned against in the New Testament. It destroys what is good and Christ-like in a person. The next stage in the story in chapter 12 is perhaps a year or so later. David has married Bathsheba and the baby has been born. It seems that David was still in denial about his sin. He had not been confronted about it. His own officials knew what had happened. Joab, the commander of the army, knew. But still David had not confessed his sin. And so the Lord sends Nathan the prophet to David to confront him. This was a very dangerous assignment. David had been acting out of character. He was refusing to accept what Scripture said about his sin. No doubt he had arguments in his mind to justify what he had done, and David could not rely on his position as prophet to guarantee his own safety. After all, David had already arranged for the killing of one of his very loyal soldiers, Uriah, and he could easily have had Nathan killed. Nathan, as I said, has a dangerous assignment from the Lord, and he is very intelligent about the way he confronts David. Firstly, if you want to bring someone to repentance, how do you do it? You don't start by condemning the person themselves. You have to get them to condemn themselves first. That was Nathan's first tactic. He did not condemn David first. He got David to condemn himself. And how was he going to get David to condemn himself? Well, firstly, by condemning someone else who had done the same thing as David. This is the biblical way of bringing someone to repentance, to highlight how they have condemned other people for their behavior, and then you show that they themselves have uh, behaved in that same way. It's Paul's strategy in Romans for bringing all of us to repentance. So it's worth noting Nathan's careful tactics. So Nathan's next problem then was, how was he going to get David to condemn someone, someone else, for doing what David had done? Nathan doesn't tell David about someone else who had committed adultery. That would immediately have put David on his guard. So Nathan carefully thinks, about what David would be most sympathetic to. What would be the worst crime in David's eyes? What sort of behavior would make David really angry? And then Nathan remembers the story of David as a young boy, when he was a shepherd. David himself had told Saul that he often risked his life 
to rescue a helpless lamb which had been taken by a lion or a bear. It was a feature of David's character as a shepherd that he had a special love for a little lamb that was being carried off by the brute power of a strong animal. And David's instincts as a young shepherd were to rescue the vulnerable little lamb. It was that historical detail which uh, prompted Nathan to take hold of. And so he told David of a story of great injustice. A poor shepherd had only one little female lamb, but he loved it. David would naturally have felt sympathy towards that poor shepherd because he had been in that situation himself. Of course, Nathan was thinking of Bathsheba as a little vulnerable female lamb and her husband, her loving husband Uriah, as the poor shepherd who had only one wife whom he loved. But then Nathan continues his story. There was this rich and powerful man who had lots of his own lambs. Nathan was thinking of David, of course, who had lots of his own wives. One day, the story continued, a traveler came to visit the rich man. What Nathan called a traveler was actually David's sexual desire, which came to David perhaps unexpectedly. Uh, and the traveler was David's sexual desire as David was on his palace roof. He could have gone at that point to one of his own wives, just as the rich man could have taken one of his own lambs. But instead, uh, Nathan's story continued. Instead of using his own lambs, this rich man used his power and influence to steal the one lamb belonging to the poor shepherd. And David's sympathy for the poor shepherd was already aroused. And when he heard of the abuse of power by this rich man, he was outraged. He condemned the rich man and passed sentence on him. He must pay four times. Now that David, sorry, now that Nathan had got David to condemn the very thing which David himself had done, Nathan draws back the curtain which was covering David's eyes. He revealed who the rich, powerful man was. You are the man, he said to David. It was a masterly strategy. <clears throat> David had already condemned himself in the way he had judged someone else as he thought. Moreover, David had also passed the sentence, pay four times. And Nathan, now that David had been challenged by his sin and condemned himself, he said that David would suffer the sentence that David himself had passed. And the subsequent chapters tell us that David did indeed suffer four times. He lost four of his sons in the subsequent chapters. So David's sin had long-reaching consequences also for the government of the kingdom. It led to rebellion and civil war and almost to the loss of the kingdom. But after all the punishment and discipline that was necessary from God, God made a phenomenally gracious choice. In the line of descendants from David to Christ, Matthew records that the line from David went through Solomon. And who was Solomon's mother? Bathsheba. 
actually in Matthew's genealogy, he doesn't mention Bathsheba, mention Bathsheba by name. Instead, he mentions Uriah, her husband. No doubt to bring honor to the memory of a most honorable man who suffered a great injustice. So out of the sordidness of this whole affair, we find God reaching in and producing something glorious and eternal. That reveals so much about the character of God and his love for the victims of sin. Now finally, let me just end by mentioning one or two broader applications of our passage this morning. Now, we should all allow Scripture to speak to us personally and privately, but let me mention two somewhat more public applications for our world today. I mentioned at the start that any form of love must always operate within boundaries which God has set, whether in the form of a covenant, whether in the form of his law. If people claim to be motivated by love, but that so-called love causes them to cross boundaries, to break covenants which God has decreed, then it will bring trouble and will destroy those who participate in it. The very first boundary which God drew for the human race is given on the first page of the Bible. It is the boundary between male and female. Our world today advocates what they call loving relationships which break that boundary line. The lesson of our passage this morning is obvious. That whatever feelings a person may have, whatever sense of love, as they may put it, if a relationship causes someone to cross a fundamental boundary of creation, it will not lead to happiness. Instead, it is likely to destroy what is good in people who cross the boundary. The second application, I think it's appropriate to shine the spotlight on Christians. The Christian world has been shocked in recent years by several high-profile Christian leaders who have committed sexual sin. I won't name individual cases, but many of you will be familiar with some of them. And there is a common pattern. There's maybe a gifted Christian speaker who becomes the leader of a large Christian organization. They are admired, revered, followed by millions on the internet, and are regarded as highly influential. Then, rumors start to circulate about inappropriate sexual behavior. At first, the allegations are denied. There may even be attempts to cover it up, but eventually, the evidence becomes undeniable. The rest of the organization jettisons its leader and acts to protect itself. Now, when someone becomes revered by other Christians, when they become popular, when they feel they have great influence, that's a very dangerous moment for them. The sense of power and influence which a leader feels can trigger a vanity, which in turn undermines the leader's commitment to keeping within the boundaries of God's word personally. Perhaps they can even feel that their service for the Lord has earned them brownie points with God. And they can feel that they have earned the right to have a little bit of fun on the side, as they might put it. There are endless ways that Christians can deceive and justify themselves. On the other hand, 
the Christians who put such people on a pedestal. Many Christians are foolish and mindless in the way they idolize the latest well-known Christian leader. The sense of celebrity has infiltrated the Christian church. And such Christians who idolize uh, so-called leaders, popular leaders, are partly responsible themselves for destroying those that they idolize. It doesn't even have to be the leader of a large Christian organization. I've known, and I'm sure you have known too, some small churches where perhaps the youngish pastor is idolized by younger people in the church. The younger women uh, rival one another to get his attention, and he foolishly and arrogantly revels in the attention and returns it. Before too long, we shouldn't be surprised to hear that he has left his wife to run off with a younger woman from the church. So these issues are sadly present in our society today, both in society at large and sadly amongst Christians. So I just leave scripture with you and may God's word strengthen us and protect us and prepare us for future temptation so that we'll be able to live within the boundaries that God has defined and be, ever, be able to discover and to experience the true joys of real love from the Lord. Let's just take a moment to pray. Our Father, we know that your word is serious, but utterly realistic. Your word this morning has challenged some issues which may be relevant to some people now, but may be relevant in the future. So we pray that your word would give us strength and fortify us against temptation, even now, but certainly in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.